Hey man, I'm not kidding you. I'm going kidding. Hi, I'm Keith Miles. Author of Bob Dylan in London. And I've been to London. He's going to clean up that glass, man. And Bob Dylan in the Big Apple. Went to the Big Apple. Took a bite. And you're listening to Play That Rock and Roll. This is not a test. This is Play That Rock and Roll Podcast Edition. I'm your host, Joseph Kane, and like the song at the start says, just call me Joe. Welcome to another edition of our ongoing Bob Dylan series. Today is my interview with author Keith Miles, who has published two books about Bob. The first is called Bob Dylan in London, Troubadour Tales, and his new book is Bob Dylan in the Big Apple, Troubadour Tales of New York. And that one is due out in just a few weeks. I invited Keith on the show because these books are rather unique projects. They are specifically about Bob Dylan's connections to the cities of London and New York, respectively. But they're not just a collection of Bob's stories from those cities. The books include illustrations and maps, which make them rather handy travel guides. In effect, a physical tool for fans to engage said fandom. If you're a Bob Dylan fan and you live in London or New York City, or you plan to visit either of those towns, you should definitely get your hands on these books as they are going to give you great ideas of where to visit. So in this interview, we talk about how these projects came to be and we dive into some of Bob's stories from his time in London in the early 60s. Like his infamous on-camera argument with folk singer Donovan, and the time he was called a Judas for going electric. We discuss Bob's return to London in the early 90s for the World Gone Wrong album, and then we move to New York for a few stories, like his legendary 1984 appearance on Late Night with David Letterman with the punk rock band The Plugs. This was a really fun interview. Keith is a bona fide Bob Dylan expert and just about the nicest guy. So if you're a fan of Bob Dylan at all, I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. And again, if you live in London or New York, you should really get your hands on these books. And you can do that on Amazon. Bob Dylan in London is available now, and Bob Dylan in the Big Apple is due out in just a couple of weeks. And if you're interested in signed copies of Bob Dylan in the Big Apple, you can follow the link in the description below, and uh, Keith will sign those for you. Now, if you want to learn more about either of these books, or if you're just interested in some daily Bob Dylan content on social media, I would suggest you follow Keith over at his Twitter account, at Barberville, B-A-R-B-E-R-V-I-L-L-E. Keith is very active on Twitter, so if you have any questions about these books, I'm sure he'd be happy to answer them. So without further ado, here's my interview with Keith Miles, author of Bob Dylan in London, and Bob Dylan in the Big Apple. And I've been to London. Let's start off with how these books came to be. So the first one, Bob Dylan in London, you co-wrote with uh, Jackie Lees. Could you tell me a little bit about how that partnership formed and what made you two decide to write the book? 
Yeah, it's um, it, it, it's a wonderful labour of love uh, that, that Jackie and I have been through here. We, we met at university in London uh, many, many hundreds of years ago, and uh, we were both huge Dylan fans from, from teenage and beyond. Um, but it was only when uh, Dylan received the Nobel Prize, and I met up with Jackie, and we thought, you know, we're both Londoners, we're both Dylan fans. Uh, there is very little about Bob Dylan in London, in all the many, many books, frankly, uh, that there are about Dylan. And we decided to go on a bit of a pilgrimage and go around the places that are in the book. Um, and, you know, it is, it, is, it is the year 2021, for example, and there are still people in this world that think that the subterranean homesick blues video is in New York, <laughs> oh. you know, and and you know, uh, and we we went to the Savoy steps where that was, and there was no sign. You haven't got queues of tourists waiting with their placards, you know. It, it, it's you know, and this is the world's first music video, really. You know, it, it's it should be, you know, a, a, a place of pilgrimage for music people all around the world um and jackie and i went to various places the king and queen pub um the troubadour where we turned up which was a fabulous fabulous uh, still is a fabulous venue um and we were aware that dylan had played there in 62 that hendrix had played there that paul simon had played there uh, that Led Zeppelin had played there, um, and yet they had pictures of the Beatles on the wall. And we thought, well, look, this is, this is you know, we needed a place to, um, to be a focal point for Dylan fans in London. The Troubadour was wonderful. They were wonderfully kind uh, and interested people. Uh, the owners now are American, uh, as it happens. Mm. Um, we really wanted, Jackie and I, our initial thought was, let's put a picture on the wall. There is no, there are wonderful pictures of Bob Dylan at the Troubadour and not on the wall of the Troubadour. And we thought, we'll put a picture up. The owners then said, well, why don't you have a whole room and kick the whole thing out? So it is now a beautiful room that thankfully has survived the pandemic and a refurbishment at the, the Troubadour. But it's got the story of Dylan in London there. We've got posters from the time. We've got books. We've got all sorts there. And it was really wonderful that we were able, as fans and Londoners, to do that. Um, and as part of this process of, of, of gathering information, um, I foolishly said to Jackie one day, why don't we put it all down in a book? Um, and we'd intended, it was very much a labour of love, um, and we'd very much intended to publish it ourselves. Look, you know, this is, we'd, we'd like Dylan fans to know about this, all the things that we'd found, and, you know, I'd been delighted to be invited over to talk about it at the inaugural um, uh, conference in Tulsa oh. at the archive, and that was wonderful. Um, so I talked about part of the book in, over there. Um, 
But we really, really wanted to put down these stories and these, this wonderful adventure uh, of Dylan's time over here uh, into a book form for others and to be a guide, um, which is why there's a map. Um, actually, it was Dylan Twitter that, that um, we were putting this out and I was, I was getting interest for this and we were going to publish it ourselves. And we were eventually approached by publishers who said, this looks really good. Would you like to publish it properly? Um, oh. And it was wonderful. And um, Jackie and I never published a book. Um, and the, the day after Bob Dylan in London came out over here in the UK, um, we went to number one in the Amazon bestseller list, <laughs> which was a bit of a shock to the system. You know, we beat Tom Jones to the top of the folk music charts. And oh. uh, it's it was a great thing. It was, you know, and we got such wonderful, kind reviews from people of what we put together. And I think, you know, it was it was important for us to tell the stories. It was important for us to put right a few of the the um, uh, the stories about where Dylan played and when he played over here. Um, I knew several books, several well-known books, that had got completely the wrong dates and the wrong places and sometimes as in you know Robert Shelton's No Direction Home has a completely erroneous pub in there that he couldn't possibly play in um, you know so we wanted to put it right we're Londoners this is our hometown you know um, and the, the times that Dylan was here 62, 63 only a matter of a few weeks but critical in his, his career um, and then, of course, the, the you know the subterranean homesick blues, you know, uh, don't look back. Time, um, you know, it, that's the iconic Dylan rock star time, and it's in London, you know. And we wanted to get that all down. We wanted it to be a guidebook, which is, you know, we a lot of people said, well, why didn't you put such and such a place in, or or this, that, the other concert. Number one, we wanted the tails, but number two, it's got to go in someone's pocket and they can take it around London. <laughs> so it's got to be, for us, it was important to have a map. Um, it was a, important for us to, to make it a usable guide. I think that's one of the best things about the book is that it's not just a book. I really like that you have the map, and I especially like that you're, you're doing things outside of the book, like getting that room uh, identified as the Dylan room. It, it seems like a project beyond just a book, which is, which is very cool, because a book is sort of a passive object, but now you're giving people a tool to, like, go to these places and not just talk about it. So post the pandemic, we now have the ability. There are people taking the book around. We've been on tours. We take people around. We know that it's it's used as a you know. Unfortunately, we we published a we published a tourist guide in the middle of a pandemic. Right. So it's never, you know, but thankfully, it's a readable book. Um, but you know, now it's it's quite important for me as a Londoner. I've I've lived and worked in London all my life, and and people go. It would be the same in any city. You know, people go to 
Oxford Street. Why would you want to do that? You know, people don't go to the site of where the first music video was, which is fabulous. You know, people people don't go. You can go into the Savoy Hotel. People should go to the American bar in the Savoy Hotel, which is one of the finest places you can ever, ever go and drink, you know, and it's it's quite accessible. But but people, you know, that's the same with tourism, but particularly music tourism, um, you know, you don't find out about these places. There's not a way of, of going. You end up going to the, the same old sort of places. And we wanted to make it, um, you know, we wanted to put that story across and, and Dylan in London is you know, hopefully great stories that people will enjoy and will go around those, those particular slots. Um, and that, that was important to us. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Yeah, and and you mentioned the the Savoy a couple of times, so let's let's talk about that place because yeah, like you said, they did the iconic subterranean homesick blues video right out front or uh, in the alley to the side of it. I I, I want to say I heard in another interview you did that there's there's no marking of that right. There's nothing still acknowledging that. That's disappointing. Do you think that'll change? No, it, it's, it's one of the things we wanted to do. Like I say, we had a lot of things on our checklist, Jackie and I, you know, what we wanted to do to mark, you know, how Dylan is. You know, there are, there are plaques in London for all sorts of stuff. But, you know, it, it's uh, one side of, of that particular alley. The, the joy is it's still exactly the same. You know, and up until recently, they had scaffolding back up again. So you, oh. you look at that and you think, Cripes. You know, I, I am amazed that every time I go there, and we take tours there, we take the cards with us, and people yeah. do that, and they take the pictures, and it's wonderful. Um, I'm always amazed that there aren't queues of tourists waiting for their turn, you know, and why wouldn't you want to go and see that, uh, you know, in, in all its glory? Um, but on one side, it's the Queen's Chapel, um, and on the other side, it's the Savoy Hotel, mm. and, and 90 
keen on putting a plaque up there. Mm. Um, I've asked the Queen um, through the that does it, but it was a, it was a very polite no. Um, Savoy Hotel, which I find a wonderful place, and like I say, I think any any tourist in London should go to the American Bar. They actually have a lovely little museum in the bar of all the Hollywood stars. They're doing that's like a historic site in London, right? Yeah, this is this this is the original. Um, the Savoy Hotel cocktail book was the original sort of um, template for most of the cocktails that, that we know. All of the Hollywood stars were there. The Savoy Hotel themselves, uh, and it is a lovely place that you can go into and not fill out a place at all, which is, is, is wonderful. And the Savoy Hotel themselves are more keen on the Hollywood stars than they are on the Dylan time there. Um, you know, I think as, as we know from the film, you know, he kind of trashed the joint, you know, and uh, it, was, it, was, it was a big party. But I mean, you know, this is, this, is, this is a huge part of rock and roll history being made there, you know, with the Penna Baker film, you know, I, I yeah. you know, and, and, you know, Subterranean Homesick Blues is pretty much the first real music video. Um, and you know, he we we tell the tale in 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 the book about how that was made. There in fact were three goes at that, um, and it's the middle one that they nail actually in the in the Savoy Steps alleyway, um, which I mean, and they did in one take, and it's fabulous. And and it, it's it's a it's a new pretty much the first music video. There been very few that have been better over the last how many decades you know it's so iconic it's so beautifully done it works so so well well it's it's not just the uh, the iconic music video but one of my favorite dylan stories of his whole history is from the don't look back movie and it's you re just referenced it that big raucous party that was uh you know captured on film and, you know, he had that sort of infamous dust-up with Donovan. You know, that's the sort of thing that if I went to the Savoy, I would want to stay in the room where they had that argument, you know? Let's <laughs> do that glass in the street. Yeah, this is Who right. did it? This now, you better tell me. If somebody don't tell me who did it, you're all going to get the fuck out of here and never come back. I'm not giving you shit. No, What'd you do it for, man? What'd you throw a glass in the street for? I didn't throw a glass in the street. Well, show me the person that did. If you don't have him here, no, man, I'm not going to tell you. You I'm better right. take responsibility for right. it. I know a thousand right. cats are looking yeah, just like you, man. Talk just like you. Oh, fuck off. You're a big noise, you know? I know it, man. I know a big noise. You got about a bigger noise than you, man. I'm a small noise. Right. I'm a small cat. That's right. Oh, Listen, God. if I'd have thrown a... Hey, you're anything you streets. say you are, man. I'm you say nothing. you're a small... You're not, I'm I, nothing. I believe you. Nothing. I believe you, man. Boy. Can you talk about a little bit, because there might be some people uh, watching who aren't familiar with that story. Can you talk about uh, what happened at the Savoy with that party between Bob and Donovan? Well, I think if you, if you look at that, people have said down the years that... that Dylan was, was a bit unkind to Donovan. I, I don't think he really was. I, I think he was a little bit, um, you know, they used, and, and actually on that particular tour, um, 
they would tour around England, but they would come back to the Savoy. So in a, in a, you know, there are great stays in other hotels throughout England, but essentially when they could, they would come back to Party Central at the Savoy Hotel. Um, and that suite that they had there, which is basically a floor, um, I think it was 70 quid a night or something ridiculous so we've got in the book, you know, which is like, you know, and, and, and they loved it there. You know, they, they, Dylan was basically holding court, um, you know, the Beatles came, Joan Baez came, everyone came, you know, um, and what you have in the film in, 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 in uh, Don't Look Back is, is kind of, kind of that first sort of new sort of rock and roll style documentary, um, frankly. Um, and we look at some of the, some of the, um, the, the tales that are there. We tell the story of uh, the Beatles and the Bath. Uh, we tell the story of uh, the Who Through the Glass. And, you know, again, again, people, people normally think it's this. It's a right. glass. But it's yeah. not. It's, it's a glass shelf. They had these these very beautiful ornate um, uh, uh, Egyptian sort of arrangement sort of shelves in the bathrooms, and it was one of those that someone had obviously, you know, hit too hard and it had smashed on the floor. So they'd obviously tried to sort of sweep it up and put it out the window. Oh, okay. Yeah. See, that's interesting. I learned that from your book. I thought it was just uh, like a, a, a drinking glass. And that's what made, like, the, the scene initially funny to me, because I thought Bob was getting upset over something fairly trivial. But if they're breaking furniture and throwing the evidence out of the window, that is actually sort of a, a reasonable um, thing to get upset about. Yeah, no, I think we, it, it's, we've got Bob off, off the rap here for that one. I think yeah. he's quite... You know, and, and you can see that they are, you know, they, they used it to, to party, um, but you can see quite a lot from the film um, that, that Bob's not particularly kind of okay with that. You know, he's, he's in his holding court, but he's, you know, he's not, he's not going to be trashing the place. <laughs> you know, this is not his kind of way of being, you know, uh, he, he's, he's a nice nice boy from Minnesota, you know, he's not going to trash the joint, you know, um, and I, th I think that comes from, I mean, you, you see lots of pictures where all the, 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 the pictures are askew and there's people lounging around everywhere, um, but essentially, you know, he, he's using it so people can come and, and talk to him and, and, you know, he can still, you know, um, sort of create in that environment and you see him at the typewriter sort of quite often through that you know he's he's still working you know he Dylan is, is not an artist who will um who will ever have that normal cycle of record an album tour an album come back and think oh cripes i've got no more songs well, i better sit down and write. you know he's doing all the process in the one go you know he's he's still creating while he's touring and he's um you know he's very very different in that regard but the savoy is integral to that whole rock and roll dylan um sort of image really um and again you know it's in london it's an it's an, it's an important part of of his career trajectory is to come to london what i love most about that episode and as you you referenced it yourself was uh 
how like not rock star that whole incident was. You know, you, you think of there's 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 movies and and stories of like the Rolling Stones and the Eagles and Led Zeppelin, you know, throwing TVs out of windows and trashing whole whole places. And here Bob is, you know, sort of at the height of his powers and like trying to like keep everything calm and cool. Very very different than than you know what we might expect from from someone like that and that's what sort of makes it interesting but i think you're right about the uh the the minnesota thing i'm from wisconsin you know i'm only about six hours away from where he was born there is definitely that sort of sensibility in this part of the country yeah yeah he wants he wants to clean up yeah (laughs) (laughs) absolutely okay well let's let's move to a different iconic moment uh, of bob's time in london this is uh, a couple of years later. This is the famous scene um, from, you know, originally a bootleg and then in the um, No Direction Home uh, documentary where he's playing at the Manchester Free Trade Hall in 1966 and he's gone electric with the band and someone shouts out Judas. I don't believe you. You're a liar. It seems that UK fans really did not appreciate his turn uh, towards electric music. Do you have any insight on why that might be? Well, he, when he first came and we, we take people through this in the book when he first came in 62 63 i think people have to remember that it was it was a very different sort of folk music scene it was very rigid they had kind of rules about who could sing what and with what instrument and if you weren't from that background you couldn't sing that kind of song you know which is very different from greenwich village where you could stand up and do what you wanted um you know so there was a, a certain amount of that folk scene still here um but i think and i think we explore this quite well in the book um i think albert grossman realized that do you know what it's quite good publicity to have a bit of booing and a bit of backlash um and the sound was appalling at for example the royal albert hall um they, if you look, I mean, I, I like to think that, that Bob Dylan really kick-started punk with, with Tell Me Mama, you know. I mean, and they, what they wouldn't do is, is have any kind of um, uh, sort of easing into this. It was folk song first half, punk music second half, and, you know, it was cranked up to 11, as they say. And I think Albert Grossman knew this was good coverage. You know, there was controversy here. It was different. If, if I think Bob had seamlessly gone from the folk side into a bit of the electric stuff, they wanted a big splash. And Albert Grossman, I think, was pretty keen on, on it being a big splash. As we say from... Um, uh, in the book from a lot of key witnesses that, that were there at the concerts at the time, uh, 
a lot of the, the walking out and the booing of that particular tour was because the sound was pretty awful. Mm. It was too loud and the systems couldn't cope with it. And quite often it was a bit of a cacophony. So it wasn't particularly that he changed the music or he changed from folk to electric. It was also very much that the music was way too loud, way too sudden, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and, you know, it took a bit of getting used to for people, I think. And, um, you know, I, th I think they, they knew they were, were causing a bit of a splash. In interesting point you said about the Judas cry. Um, and of course, even on the official bootleg, uh, sorry, the unofficial bootleg became official bootleg. Um, you know, that was always ascribed to London. And, you know, Jackie and I are Dylan fans and amateur sleuths. And it was people, it was people like the, the late, great C.P. Lee, you know, who were Dylan fans from those early days, um, who would sit around in pubs in Manchester and go, that was our concert. That was when we were there. We remember that guy shouting Judas. That wasn't in London. <laughs> and it took them years to persuade people that actually they remember that concert. They were at that concert. And they, as fans, knew that it wasn't the Royal Albert Hall. You know, this is the Manchester Free Trade Hall. We were there. And yeah. I love that. Bob Dylan fans are, are you know, are great sleuths. We know our stuff, and we, you know, we do go out to find out the the, the truth of all of this. Um, and you know, as I say, he, you know, the he, CPD wrote a great book about that 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 sort of particular tour. But it took them a long, long time to convince people that that was Manchester. I was just going to say, like, I knew that that bootleg. Uh, was originally mislabeled for so many years, and that's so interesting that, uh, you know, like, like you're saying, Dylan fans being the sleuths, it took a while to get that, uh, you know, turned around. Very interesting. Okay, so here, here's a question for you. Do you think that, um, maybe it was a little manufactured, but do you think the um, electric, uh, the reception to his electric music, uh, played into why he didn't come back to London for so many years because he didn't return until like 1978, right? Yeah, he kind of, I, th I think Dylan was a little bit um, knocked back by the reception to everything, you know, he, you know, partly they knew that what they were doing and partly they thought, well, goodness, do, do we, do we want to do this? There was, there was a little bit of, uh, of resentment to how it had gone down. Um, and in a way, I can understand that. You know, if you listen to the records that were coming out, it's not a shock that he's going electric. You know, yeah. he's not—he's not really snuck up on anyone with this. You know, you know what's happening. You know what music he's playing. You know, um, so I think there was a little bit of that. And you know, I talk in the book about you know '78, and and you know, reality is that in in England and you know, uh, and musically, you know, 1978, we'd had punk, we'd had post-punk, we probably had post-post-punk, you know, <laughs> 1978. And, and it, it's an amazing thing that, um, uh, 
you know, there's various bits in the book about, you know, Sid Vicious and, and Bob Dylan. And, you know, Bob Dylan is one of the, the potential music dinosaurs who's not disliked by the punk people, you know, because he had that, you know, don't look back sort of rock and roll anti-establishment sort of part you know he doesn't get the kind of grief that pink floyd and other people get right. from the punk scene um and in 1978 uh you know i was i was sleeping on the streets of hammersmith queuing for tickets for uh, for bob dylan i wasn't just sleeping on the streets of hammersmith no i was for tickets you know um that's that's what we did in those days. You know, you didn't you didn't go online and wait. You you had to physically get out and and, and sleep overnight in the pouring rain. Um, and there was, there was serious Dylan mania. It was it was an extraordinary thing. You know, he was still he was still very popular. And in fact, he was so popular here in '78 that it took his entire management team by surprise. They'd sold out all of those court. And then they thought, hang on a minute, we could have sold this dozens of times over. Um, you know, we're, we're music managers. We have to make loads of money. What do we do now? We can't put Bob anywhere. Um, and what happened was, and, 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 as we know, and, and people can read in the book, they just found an old disused aerodrome, you know, which is basically a huge piece of land just outside of London where they held the Blackbush Festival. And really, in, in 78, uh, essentially, Bob's reinventing the modern music festival because we had Glastonbury, we'd had all those early ones, and this was post the, post the this was beyond the, the, the sort of hippie time and yeah. Woodstock. All those had been and gone, and then we'd gone to sort of stadiums and we'd gone through that bit through the 70s. Um, but what we hadn't had, you know, Glastonbury ticked along and, and these sorts of festivals ticked along, but they weren't big and popular at that sort of time in, in by 78. Um, and what Dylan did was, you know, they, they, they found the biggest piece of empty land they could. There were no, it, it, I find Blackbush fascinating because there were, there were no facilities. No one could get trains home. Uh, people lost their virginity there. People stayed there for days because they couldn't get back home. Um, it was an extraordinarily under-facilitated festival. Um, there were probably a quarter of a million people there. No one really knows. It was just, you know, it was just the most chaotic thing. But it kind of brought the festival back. Yeah. You know, from 78 onwards then, in this country, we had the Rock Against Racism festivals. Right. And people thought, do you know what? Festivals, they were quite good. We could get loads of people in. And this is, you know, and I think Blackbush doesn't get the credit for really helping to kickstart that. Um, and Blackbush was, was a wonderful, um, crazy sort of adventure uh, for Dylan. But it showed that in 78, um, you know, he was still enormously popular. Well, that's the tour that had the famous review where someone said, the greatest concert I've ever seen, uh, you know, which sort of proved that there there was a huge groundswell of support for Bob. Um, that was one of the more interesting parts of the book was uh, the that festival, because 
I've read a couple of Dylan biographies, and I I don't recall that being really a big focus of those stories. So you know, again, a credit to you and and this book of uh, you know bringing that back into focus. So well, yeah, I mean, it was one of the things, sorry, it was one of the things we wanted to do is is that these we knew how important these parts were. You know, when Dylan first came over in '62. Um, you know, all of the parts around, you know, the, the, the tours of 65 and 66 and way beyond, you know, we wanted this sort of stuff covered because it wasn't in books or, you know, it just, you know, and I, I, I'm next to a huge library of Dylan books and, you know, I have a very different interest. Jackie and I, when we first started this with the Troubadour Tales, what we wanted was a, an easy read because Dylan doesn't have to be difficult to read about. Um, one of the, the nice reviews I've, I've had sort of recently is, is that it's ref the, the books are refreshingly non-academic. I'll take that, definitely. Absolutely. Jackie, Jackie and I did not want any footnotes. I, you know, the number of Dylan books I've read when the footnote's bigger than the page is just, no, I'm not interested. And, and it's just for me, I, I think they're one of these, you know, Michael Gray, who's a, is a wonderful Dylan writer, you know, he's written almost everything I want to read about Dylan's lyrics, pretty much, mm -hmm. you know, the rest of the time I actually just want to listen to the music. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm just personally more interested in the Dylan stories, the people around him, the circumstances, the history, all that side of it, I find absolutely fascinating. And it was it was a, amazing to Jackie and I that there wasn't a book on this, basically. Yeah, that's a big strength of the book, is that it is very accessible and readable. It doesn't take, you don't have to, you know, earmark a month to get through it. One last topic for um, London, and then we'll move on to New York. So let's talk about Bob's vi visit to Camden in uh, the summer of 1993. Uh, he did a lot of promotional material for the World Gone Wrong album. Uh, there, can you tell us a little bit about those sites? Yeah, I mean, it, it, these are important things that, that we, we wanted the, the story not to not to stop in the 70s and you know for me i love well gone wrong i think that's one of his finest albums I, I genuinely listen to that as much as i do any other Bob Dylan album you know i think he's in fine form i think this this is the kind of album that shows uh the bob dylan that loves music that loves music history and it's wonderful. And I think it was a real joy. He came over because he was friends with, with Dave Stewart, the producer, the guy from the Eurythmics. Um, and Dave Stewart did the video to um, Blood In My Eyes with a walkabout through Camden. Um, and Camden's a wonderful place. Camden is one of the places that people should visit uh, as a tourist to, to London. Um, and we found fabulous stories. Um, you know, the the... the the, the mythical story of Dave the Plumber, which we wanted in there, which we, was was pretty important to us. I'm I'm pretty sure that's not an apocryphal story. Um, okay. I remember I remember listening to a radio program that Danny Baker did, 
uh, music program that he did. And the the wife of Dave the Plumber rang in to tell the oh. real story, which is what we have in the book, which is we have that eyewitness story. Um, and it's it was a wonderful wonderful time I, I you know bob wandering through camden in a top hat uh you know it doesn't get better than that really. <laughs> it's quite a visual can you tell us a little bit about the cafe that uh they took the photo that they used the album cover for yeah it's unfortunately it's it's not a cafe anymore because it would oh. be a wonderful it's um it was called Fluke's Cradle. Um and you read in the book there's, there's a wonderful story about um they it was a, a, a young young female photographer who was given the gig to, to, to take photos and had no idea actually her photo was gonna be on the cover. Um and then lo and behold the picture behind Bob um was a was an artist who had just put up his pictures for sale for a few quid in this cafe. And he had no idea until someone contacted him and said, do you know your paintings on the front of a Bob Dylan cover? <laughs> uh, and of course, Bob's legal team had not even got this signed off. So there was a mad scramble around to find this artist and to, to, to try and, you know, by which time people were trying to buy this picture, you know, become become famous throughout the world for the, from the cover of the album. But there were great stories from that time. And, and you know, now I do uh, music tours with um, uh, London Music Tours. And, and the other day with the Cambridge Bob Dylan Society, who are, are mad keen Dylan fans. I mean, they, they, they extraordinary knowledge uh, that these people have. We did a tour um, retracing the steps of the video to Bloody My Eyes. And that that's, you know, again, you know, Bob can still do a fabulous video. <laughs> he really oh, yeah. can. He's done, he's done some horrors, but he can still do a fabulous video. <laughs> okay, so on that, on the note of, of that music video, so this this might be a little, a little far-fetched, but the music on World Gone Wrong is very much representative of Bob's musical roots, right? Do you think it was a conscious decision for him to use the visual material of Camden, you know, for the album cover and the music video to sort of be a representation of those roots, given that he has such a strong history with the city of London? Uh, I would love to think so. I think it's entirely accidental. Oh. Um, <laughs> it was entirely, he was over here at the time he was putting all this together. Um, he was over here looking at doing work with Dave Stewart. Um, and they did some stuff at, at Dave Stewart's studio here. I okay. think it was entirely incidental. I would love it to be different. It works very well, though, as it happens, because you have Dylan in that outfit you know he looks very much the uh, um uh the part really for, for that that kind of music uh and it works him going through camden and it's amazing that you know this is the mid 90s and half of the people recognize him and half of the people have no idea who he is <laughs> have you ever seen the movie hearts of fire with bob uh, and yes, but not without strong liquor. <laughs> um. 
and in the role that takes you beyond the legend, Bob Dylan. Hearts of Fire. You want some eggs? This is my best effort at a contribution to Bob Dylan in London. I found out online that they filmed part of it. I don't know which part, but they filmed part of it in Camden. And they did a press conference for it at the uh, National Film Theater in London. So how about that? You could have mentioned uh, Hearts of Fire. <laughs> the trouble is, and I'll come on to this, is even more um, stark with, with the New York book is, you know, Jackie and I had to filter a lot down oh, yeah. to a user guide that you can carry around with you. Um, and it's, it's been quite difficult, you know. Um, I, there's a lot of things that, um, uh, that, that were left on the cutting room floor. Um, I particularly wanted to include, uh, for example, um, there, there's, a, there's a famous fan who, who's now no longer with us called, called Lamb Chop. Um, Larry Evans, who who is a London-based fan, who used to tour around with with watch Bob all over the world, mm -hmm. um, and he would famously and this this was my updated heckle to Judas, right? Because Lamb Chop, bless him, would always shout out this pretty much the same heckle, which is "Play what you want, Bob," and that was oh. it. He was, he was, he was, he was, you can hear this cry in, in places all over the world. And I wanted Lamb Chop to look. Um, and at one point, um, uh, Bob, who is not, you know, for, for, for many years up until recently, didn't say a lot on stage. Um, Bob, he once referenced um, Lamb Chop and he said, this guy has been to more Bob Dylan concerts than I have. <laughs> To put a bow on the, the London conversation, I just wonder about your own personal fandom. You mentioned that you were waiting in line to see Bob in 1978. Uh, did you see him on, on that tour? And, and how many times have you seen Bob over the years? Uh, half a dozen times. Uh, last time was Hyde Park uh, and then played him for that. Um, the one that I do feel awful about and I've, I've, I've publicly apologized for many a time was seeing him in 1981 and being less than impressed oh. and thinking who's this stuff hang on a minute the 1981 tour with all the gospel side and everything you know now I listen to that more than any other music and I think you know I can see behind you you know a, a bit of slow train coming and and you know that music was sublime, and those yeah. tours were sublime. And I can listen now to, to the Earl's Court 1981 uh, uh, tapes and think, what was I thinking? That's yeah. better than anyone's ever performed. <laughs> but I came out of 81 thinking, I'm not too sure. I don't know. Do I like this or not? Um, and I was wrong. That's so fantastic you've said that. Uh, you know, I do a mini-series here on this show called Dylan Through the Decades with my friend Chris. And when we got to our Dylan in the 80s episode, we both at the start of it, 
you know, expected like, oh boy, you know, here comes the Born Again years, and we didn't think we were going to like it. Both of us found that we liked all three of those albums to varying degrees. You know, we found stuff on all three that we liked quite a bit. Slow Train Coming is one of my favorite of his in the whole 70s. And in addition to that, uh, I had uh, Jack Hughes from Wang Chung on the show, and he's a Dylan fan, and he told me that exactly what you said. In the 70s, or in the late 70s, early 80s, he initially did not like the Christian stuff at all, but now that's some of his favorite stuff. Did you ever get into his gospel stuff in the early 80s? Like, Slow Train Coming and Saved. Do you ever listen to any of those? Not particularly at the time. No. Yeah. yeah those but I do love them now. Slow Train, I think, is just awesome. You know. So it's very, uh, I think, um, you know, uh, rewarding to see that particular part of his catalog get revisited and, you know, saluted for what it is. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, there are a lot of gigs over the years I would love to go back and revisit. Um, you know, I, certainly one is, is, is at 81, you know, and, and really properly appreciate. One of the others is, is seeing Bob Marley, and I don't think anyone remembers of it. Really <laughs> it's not one you can remember. <laughs> but it, I'm sure it was fabulous, but who knows? <laughs> All right, that's terrific. Okay, let's uh, let's move ahead to your new book. This is uh, called Troubadour Tales, Bob Dylan in the Big Apple. It's about New York City. Again, fundamental uh, location in Bob's story. He got his start there. Um, this one you wrote solo. Uh, first question is, when is that due out? It's due out in the UK on December the 9th. Okay. Um, I'm looking at different um, uh, Amazon call the shots on publishing now. So, you know, uh, but I'm looking at different outlets so people can get it out in America quicker. Um, we can, there is, if, if I'm right in thinking, um, I do, a, we did the last time and we're doing this time, sign copies through oh. uh, the, the Dylan magazine and I think they will ship um, but if people want to check that there's only a small number a limited number of signed copies that go out through ISIS and you can look them up online um, unfortunately they've never changed their name <laughs> <laughs> That might have been might have been a priority a few years ago, but look at look at the ISIS online, the Bob Dylan magazine, and then erase your browser history. Oh man, ISIS, love ISIS. That's what oh boy, I better not take that clip out of context. <laughs> Just a two second clip of I love ISIS. <laughs> love ISIS. But yeah, no, it, it, it's it's coming out soon. It, okay. it was one of the, the, the you know I. Um, having set a template of, of like fun, easy guides like this, you know, I, I thought I wanted to do more. Jackie, who I wrote the first bit, book with, decided that actually, do you know what, at getting a book out is, is, I have no idea what giving birth's like, but I can't imagine it's anywhere worse than producing a book and getting it out. Um, I'm going to lose all the female fans from your station now. That's yeah. it. Um, well, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Um, but it's, you know, um, you know, and the, the publisher said to us, you know, look, it's been a really successful book, Bob Dylan in London. Um, you know, we'd like you to do three more. So, um, so I had a contract to do three more. Jackie thought I'm going to get a life back and, and not do that. Um, and it was, it was one of those things when they said the first one we'd like you to do is New York. I, you know, I thought, cripes, not New York. That's the one place there are a lot of books about and there are a lot of stories about. Yeah. And I thought, well, this is going to be really hard. I mean, there were two, two big problems. Number one is I couldn't go to New York because this oh. was during the pandemic. Um, but that was easily solved because I have um, in Brett Johnson and Sarah Rabb, two fabulous researchers that are out there. And in fact, Brett writes a couple of the chapters because he can go to the White Horse Tavern. He can go to what was the Hotel Earl, the Washington Square Hotel, and we can do that. So that was that was easily done. Um, but the other difficulty was that, you know, I. To, to actually do all of New York and Dylan, you know, you've got to have the guy booking a blooming wheelbarrow, you know, it's going to be so <laughs> Um And I had to consciously, you know, you were saying about not doing Hearts of Fire in, 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 in the London book, you know, and I'm quite with you, you know, there's a, there's a load that's not in there. New York, this, this subject is so vast, you know, I, I had to, for example, not count Woodstock. Yeah, you, know, you um, live there, right? Yeah, so, you know, I can, I, I can do parts of it that were, were out of, you know, in the state, but I, you know, I can't do that stuff. Number one, it's done lots, and number two, I've got to draw the line somewhere. And what I did want to do is talk to certain people that were part of the story. So going back to the early Greenwich Village days, I talked to Terry Tile, his first manager, um, who was wonderful. I mean, what a what a fantastic woman Terry Tile is, and not really given enough credit for how important she was to Bob Dylan. Um, you know, I had to talk to Scarlett Rivera. You know, that's an essential New York story of, in 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 the, in the Dylan um, uh, in the Dylan biography. Um, uh, another person who, to me, is essential to this, and 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 maybe I, you know, and I thought it would be quite difficult. I had to talk to AJ Weberman, <laughs> so, you know, I've got to talk to the guy that goes through the bins. You know, I, you know, this uh, this is yeah, yeah. I, I mean, he was still alive. Yeah, 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 yeah. This, <laughs> the people I talk to are really old now, and that's quite important. You know, I've got to get talk to these people while you can. And I thought AJ Weberman, bless him, is is fantastic, important part of this tale. He's crazy as a bag of spanners. Yeah. But you know, I, I thought, well I've got to talk to him. And I thought, well how am I going to do this? How am I going to arrange to to interview this guy? Um, and eventually we just again through Dylan Twitter, someone said, well look, I'll send him a message. And he sent me a message back saying, what's your number? I'll give you a ring. <laughs> Oh. And it was as if that, you know, and I'm talking to AJ Weberman and, and he's, he, I mean, I, I thought well, I've got to be honest in this interview with him, you know, I've got to ask him the things I want to ask and maybe he'll put the phone down 
you know, or he'll cut me off. But, you know, I wanted to ask about his regrets, what he felt he shouldn't have done, what he wanted to apologise for, for the, how he was over that time. He was, he was wonderfully open and apologetic about everything. He remains a Bob Dylan fan who's kind of taken things <laughs> too far many a time, but, you know, does actually apologise for, you know, knocking on Sarah's door and stuff like that, you know, the fight he had with Dylan. You know, this is a guy who, who fought in the street with Bob Dylan. He's got to be in the boat, you know? <laughs> um, you know, and it, it was it was wonderful, but he, you know, he would, as I say, very good and open about everything. And you know, it's um, yeah, this is this is this is all part of the the Dylan in in York story. That's fascinating because you know I remember reading you know the Dylan books that I have recently, and he is treated in those books as quite the villain and there's not a lot of nuance to that story so it is interesting that you had an opportunity to you know get a, a better look a modern look at, at yeah. how he feels about all that stuff now yeah, I mean, he's, total, he's total pantomime villain and you know, as, he, as he says you know Bob said to him, look, you know, you, you helped me sell records, you know, and, 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 and it's just true. This is, you know, it, it was obviously clearly pretty unsavory at times and, and, and mad stuff at times, you know, but it is part of the, the, the Dylan story. And there are fascinating bits like that. But, you know, the, these are people I wanted to be in the book, you know, and I also wanted to not, same as I had with Jackie, you know, I wanted, to, I wanted to unearth the stuff that people hadn't talked about. You know, there is one, uh, you know, I won't, I won't do a teaser here, or a spoiler, or whatever they call it, but, they, you know, there's one part of the book that I think is a really integral character to Greenwich Village in those early days who has not been talked about. It's, it's you know, I, I, and I, I find it... Amazing. I mean, you know, even Terry Toll, who was Dylan's first manager, who uh, with um, with Dave Van Ronk and, and Susie Rotolo, these were a foursome. They were, you know, this is his political awakening. This is his cultural awakening. You know, when he learns so much from these people. Terry Toll doesn't appear, you know, I, you know, there is the encyclopedia of, of, of Bob Dylan is 900 pages. Terry Toll doesn't have an entry. Oh. It's like, oh, you know, it's, it, you know, there, there is a lot still to be said. And I, I, I went from, you know, total heart sink in this process of thinking, you know, I don't want to tread the same territory. Um, you know, one of, one of the chapters I have, and I was pleased that the publishers went for this, um, is um, the 1984 uh, Letterman show. This is certainly an exciting moment for us. My first guest tonight, uh, truly uh, a legend of the music world, and we're very, very happy and delighted that he's doing our program. This is his latest album entitled Infidels, a fine piece of work. Please welcome... Bob Dylan. And I wanted that in. I think this is the most Dylan-like story in his whole history. You know, I, I think I've, I've called the chapter the greatest band you never saw. You know, this is this is the most wonderful 
you know, dramatic moment in front of millions of people. I can't imagine tuning into Letterman amongst the millions of people going, who on earth are those people with Bob Dylan? You know, and they're essentially a pub band, you know, uh, that didn't even know they were going on the Letterman show. You know, and it's it's wonderful stuff like that that is not in a lot of the books, you know, and is not covered. And people, you know, don't bother to go out and talk to these people or get this stuff in. You know, there's there's the dramatic moment in the middle of, of Joker Man when he can't find the right harmonica. <laughs> Essentially, I could have the real book that I wanted and that I would want to read, you know, um, without having the possibility of even going out there to go around and do this. But you know, I, I, I you know, I, I, I'm delighted to have a um, uh, an endorsement from from Stevie Van Zant, you know, a legend in New Yorker, um, who actually called it a fun primer. Now, I love people when they use the F word about marketing, you know, because it's fun. It yeah. is fun. You know, Bob Dylan is fun and funny and wonderful. And, you know, I think we can get way, way, way too bogged down in, in being academic or pseudo-academic about Bob Dylan. And it's wonderful music. It's wonderful stories. And it's very important that I do... What Jackie and I set out to do is is slightly balance things a little, you know. Um, quite Absolutely. important, in, you know. Absolutely, and and I I as someone who has read a couple of those books that feel very academic, you know, that does run the risk of suck, sucking the fun out of you know the music and the man that we're celebrating. So I really appreciate your approach to this. Before we get out of here. I just wonder, uh, you mentioned that you got a deal for uh, three more books, two after The Big Apple. Are you able to say what those are, or is that got to be a secret for now? No, I mean, one, one that I'm going to have to do a little further down the line is, is going to cover quite a lot of Japan, um, where Bob Dylan is, uh, you know, and again, he didn't go to Japan until 1978. But, you know, what Bob did at the time was, you know, he didn't just release his stuff, um, you know, and, and, and tour. He, he got very engrossed in, in the very different sort of culture that is out there. Um, you know, all of his album covers were translated into Japanese. He, you know, things that they really appreciated out there. Um, and he's, he's still enormously revered and there is... You know, in Osaka, there's a whole folk scene um, that, uh, uh, that that basically, you know, was spawned in that, that, that sort of early Dylan times. 
Um, and uh, yeah, I've, I've interviewed some, some fabulous people already on that. Well, this may be a bit a bit selfish on my end, but if you're undecided on the last one, I would uh, I would put my hat in the ring for uh, Bob Dylan in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You know, we're uh, only six hours away from he was born, and he recently kicked off his rough and rowdy ways tour uh, here. Otherwise, there's no history. <laughs> I'll tell you a very interesting thing. There's very quickly, um, there is um, when Bob Dylan first went to London, he was he was identified uh, by Martin Carthy that that first time when he played at the King and Queen by a Sing Out magazine that had Dylan on the cover, which was um, sort of lateish '62, and. Um, it was a it was a magazine that was in the folk scene and there weren't very many of them uh, and it did the rounds and i was idly going through etsy the, the website for various things yeah. and there was a vintage clothing company in wisconsin and they had a copy of this for sale Whoa. magazines with dylan on the cover which essentially is um the reason he was picked up by Martin Carthy and it all kicked off that time in 60, late 62. So it's a piece of music history that's come back to me from Wisconsin. All right. That kicks ass. Right. I love that. What a hell of a way to end the interview. Thank you so much. I got to say that both of these books I, I really like because I can see that these are very unique projects. And these are the sort of projects that, like, classic rock fans, Dylan fans, we got to get behind this kind of stuff uh, because it's it's more than just the books. If I visit London or New York, I'm going to bring your books with me, and I'm going to go to these sites, and I'm going to engage my fandom, you know? And we need to be able to do that. So for, you know, giving us a great tool for that, I salute you and, of course, Jackie. And, uh, Keith, it was real great meeting you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. That was brilliant. I really enjoyed that. That was really great. Thank you. And that was my discussion with Keith Miles, author of Bob Dylan in London and Bob Dylan in the Big Apple. I need to thank Keith for being such a great guest. He's got a great sense of humor, and I really appreciate his approach for covering Dylan. I like these books, and again, I think these are the projects that classic rock fans really need to support. So if you're a fan of Bob's, or if you're going to be visiting New York or London, or if you live there, I can't recommend it enough. Get your hands on Bob Dylan in London and Bob Dylan in the Big Apple. You can get both of those books at a good price over on Amazon. And if you would like a signed copy of Bob Dylan in the Big Apple, there is a link to do that below. You can learn more about those books by finding Keith on Twitter, at Barberville, B-A-R-B-E-R-V-I-L-L-E. And again, if you have questions about those books, just reach out to him on Twitter. You should follow him even if you don't buy the books. Daily Bob Dylan content. Can't beat that. Okay, so looking ahead for this show, we have more Bob Dylan content coming down the stretch. The next episode is going to be Bob Dylan in the 1990s. That is part four of our Dylan Through the Decades series that I'm doing with my friend Chris. And then after that, I'm going to get back to my series on the Jefferson Airplane Family Tree with a deep dive on the Jefferson Starship. So with that, thank you for listening. And since the music video for Blood My Eyes was filmed in London, 
that's going to be the song that plays us out. Take it away. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the big four things you can do to support this show that don't cost a dime. Number one, listen to the show. If you're hearing this now, that means you did this part already. Thank you. There is an infinite amount of content out there, so you choosing to spend some time listening to this show means a great deal to me. Number two, if you like what we did here, please recommend this show to family, friends, or anyone you know who's looking for a podcast, particularly about music. Share our links in Facebook groups, subreddits, and recommendation threads. Whatever you can do is highly appreciated on my end. Number three, find us on social media. Follow us on Twitter, at PlayThatPodcast. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash playthatpodcast. And subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash playthatrockandroll. Lots of great material like photos and vlogs on all three platforms. As Play That Rock and Roll is very much meant to be a content hub as well as a podcast. And finally, the big ask. Number four. Please give us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I know this part is a hassle, but it really does help the show a great deal. Not just because it affects the algorithm, but also because it gives me something I can point to when pitching this show to potential guests. The more social media followers and positive ratings the show has, the better chance I have for booking high-profile guests for interviews. So if you take a moment to give us even just a five-star rating, you are actively giving us a tool to do bigger and better things here. But whatever the case, I appreciate any and all efforts you take to support us here at Play That Rock and Roll. Be sure to join us next time for more great stories and music from the world of classic rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 